back in 2008, uh, there was a guy named Dante Knox. He's a 24-year-old musician living in the United Kingdom. And uh, Dante was like so many of you, he had this dream that he wanted to just kind of be the next big thing. And uh, he knew how it was going to work out. He had his plans. Uh, but there was a problem. No one had ever heard of him and no one had ever heard of his band. And he had no idea how they were going to kind of get this music out to the masses. And some of you can relate to that feeling. In fact, maybe 80% of you can because this is Nashville and you're all ascribing musicians. And Dante just thought, man, I want to, I want to do something with my life. I want to make something of our band, but we don't have any money. We don't have any resources. We don't have the ability to get it out there. And this was in 2008 before Kickstarter had been developed, before crowdsourcing was as popular as it is now. And so Dante had to get really creative with how he is going to get his band's name on the map. And so he comes up with this idea. Uh, there's this website called eBay. I don't know if you've ever used eBay. It used to kind of be the Amazon of the internet where you'd buy and sell things before Amazon became Amazon of the internet. And he decides that he's going to sell something on eBay and make some money and fund his band. And so he comes up with this idea back in 2008. He decides he's going to sell his soul on eBay. And I love the way that he, he posted the ad. He said, I'm here to sell one gently used soul on the internet. I don't know what his definition of gently used was, but he's only 24. So how used could his soul be? And he puts it on the internet and he puts the listing price at 700,000 pounds. Now, I don't know if you do math quickly in your head, but the translation rate is that's more than a million US dollars that he was selling his soul for. And he, he just happens to post this at a time where it was a slow news cycle. And so the news picks up on it just instantly and begins to, to share it. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about this guy that's trying to sell his soul. And eBay catches wind of what's being sold on their site. And they begin to have this debate. And the people who run eBay come out and they make this PR statement. They say, hey, there's no selling your soul on eBay. Like you can, you can sell dishes, you can sell old toasters, you can sell your car, but you cannot sell your soul. And they literally release this statement of things you can't sell. And they say, you, you can't sell invisible things. You can't sell your soul, you can't sell a ghost, you can't sell a memory. Like you can only sell something that can be physically exchanged. And so all of a sudden, the news reporters want to know what Dante thinks of this. And they say, okay, well, how do you feel that you're not allowed to sell your soul? And he's heartbroken and he's sharing his, his whole story over it. And, and this ignites a debate in 2008. Maybe some of you remember it. This, this debate that people started talking about, okay, if, if he were allowed to sell a soul, how much would he be allowed to sell it for? And this was the debate that was kind of circling the globe for a week or two. Everyone was going, okay, what is the value of a human soul? Like if, if you could exchange it, if you could sell it, like what would be the value of a human soul? And would there be the value for this guy's soul? Would it be different than this woman's soul? Would it be different than this person's soul over here? Like what's the value of a human soul? And we all know that this conversation around value it's pretty important because isn't it true that something's value is never something's value is never determined by the price that was set. Something's value is always determined by the price that someone was willing to pay, right? Like you could list your house for a million dollars, but unless someone's willing to pay a million dollars, your house is not worth a million dollars. Value is determined not by the price that is set but by the price that somebody's willing to pay. 
And people were having this discussion, what is the the value of a human soul? And I remember when that conversation began to circle the globe, I went, man, this question was answered 2,000 years ago. The question of what the the soul of humanity is worth was answered 2,000 years ago when a baby cried in a manger, when God came from heaven to earth and heaven officially showed how much it was willing to pay for the redemption of humanity. The value of the human soul was seen when Jesus stops at that Samaritan town, he stops at that well, he looks this woman in her eyes who had shipwrecked her life, had been broken by men and sexual addiction and the things that he'd beaten her down and Jesus begins to show her in his kindness what heaven valued her soul at. You see the value of the human soul in in every moment, in every conversation where Jesus forgave a sinner where Jesus healed a blind person, where Jesus restored the dignity of someone that had been pushed down on the bottom. You see the, the, the value that heaven placed on every human being when, when Jesus would show up and he would crash a wedding or he would ruin a funeral by raising someone from the dead or when he'd stretch out his arms on a cross or when he'd lay in a tomb that he didn't own or when he'd raise from the dead on the third day over and over and over. Jesus is God's dissertation. Jesus is God's definitive statement on how much you are worth. And you don't have to go looking anywhere else to wonder, what is the value? What's the value of humanity? But the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is when it comes to the value of the human soul, do we as a church believe Jesus overpaid? Like when you look at your neighbor who doesn't yet know Jesus, when you look at your brother who doesn't yet know Jesus, when you look at your coworkers or your friends, when you look at the most despicable people, do you really believe that they were worth the best that heaven had to offer? Because I think sometimes in church we confuse our mission and we think it's our mission to sit in a, in a place like this and to fix our eyes upon the price that heaven paid and to affirm in our hearts and our minds that that was a price worth paying. And we think that it is our mission to just simply affirm what heaven has already done, but it's not. It's our mission as a church to then align our lives around what heaven has already spilled its blood for. And say, this is what it means to be people who are living in full view of what God has said is the most valuable thing. See, this is what I love about the book of Ephesians. I think sometimes it's dangerous to read the Bible in settings like this. It's dangerous to read the Bible in an American context, sitting in seats in a room like this. There's no fear of your life. There's, there's no fear of death. You're not wondering what's coming your way. Like, we can do this here. And if we're not careful, we have this ability to take this radically revolutionary, dangerous book that we have that claims, these unbelievable claims, and we have this tendency to sanitize it and to fix it in, to put it into a box that it was never intended to live within. And there's this moment where you come to Ephesians chapter three and we're just reminded of the audacity of what happens in a person's heart when their eyes are fixed fully on the significance and the beauty of a God that said, hey, you're worth it, and I'll come all the way so you know it. And there's this moment where Paul says in Ephesians 3, hey, this is it. Let me give you just a little bit of background in case you weren't here seven weeks ago when Aaron kicked off this series. 
You know, this, this letter that we're reading this morning, it was written by a guy named Paul who for most of his life, he had spent all of his time and energy running full steam ahead in the opposite direction of how God had made him to live. That some of your stories right now, that's all of our stories at some point, that before we knew Jesus, whether or not you meant to do this or not, you ran full steam ahead towards your own prerogative. And this was Paul's story, and he was running, and all of a sudden, Jesus confronts Paul in this rather, rather spectacular way. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Paul was on the way to visit Syria, modern-day Syria. He was going there to Damascus. He was on this road trip, and Jesus shows up, and this confrontation rocks Paul's world. All of a sudden, Paul begins to realize, not only is Jesus real, he is exceedingly better than Paul ever could have imagined. It's not just that Jesus is real, it's that he is exceedingly better, exceedingly more gracious, exceedingly more merciful, exceedingly more loving, exceedingly more forgiving than you could have ever hoped for. And he shows up and he confronts Paul with his realness and his goodness. And this confrontation would literally redirect the entirety of Paul's life. He wouldn't just keep going in the same direction asking Jesus to bless it. Paul would turn the car around, he'd head in a brand new direction. And this confrontation with the living Jesus would literally begin to compel him towards a life of compassion. Paul started thinking, hey, my friends don't know this Jesus. My neighbors don't know this Jesus. My coworkers don't know this Jesus. The nations don't know this Jesus. And this man named Paul, who never had a picture taken of him, who never had stepped foot on an airplane, who had never had any of the modern day conveniences that we did, he says, I'm gonna take the message of this Jesus to the ends of the earth. And it was his desire to take this inclusive beautiful message of love to the ends of the earth that would get Paul in a lot of trouble. His life of compassion would get him at odds with the religious establishment of the day. And just like during the days of Martin Luther King Jr., when he started raising a voice for those that had no voice, the system came crashing down on him. And it was the same thing during the days of Paul. Paul began to raise his voice for the outsiders, for the people that didn't feel like they were included in the family of God. He started raising his voice and the religious system of the day comes crashing down on him. And by the time you get to the book of Ephesians, he's writing this little letter from a prison. I'm not talking about our kind of prison. There's no cable TV, there's no three meals a day. We're talking about a hole in the ground unthinkable circumstances, and he looks at this church after he's given them all of the doctrine from chapters one and chapter two, and he says, and I want to tell you why it is that I'm in chains for you. He says, I want you to know why it is that I think you're so worth what it is that I'm going through. And he begins like this. This morning, we're gonna read from Ephesians chapter three, verses one through 12. And we're gonna actually look from a different translation than we normally use. It's the message that we're gonna be looking at this morning. It's kind of a modern day paraphrase of the scriptures. And I think the language is just so provocative. And so I'm gonna ask them to put this up on the screen as I read it. And in case you don't have a Bible or you wanna follow along with this version. This is Paul writing from prison, trying to explain like his heart. And this is what he says. He says, so this is why I, Paul, am in jail for Jesus Christ. Having taken up the cause, listen to this, the cause of you, the so-called outsiders. 
It says, I take it that you're familiar with the part that was given to me in God's plan. Listen to this. For including who? For including everybody. I got the inside story from God himself, just as I've written to you briefly about. As you read over what I've written to you, you'll be able to see for yourselves the mystery of Jesus. This mystery that none of our ancestors understood. It's only been in our time, about 2,000 years ago, that this mystery became clear through God's spirit and God's holy apostles and the prophets in this new order. Listen to this, church. He says, this mystery... He's about to define the mystery. He says, this mystery is that people who have never heard of God and people who have heard about God their whole lives, who I've been calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. This is what Paul's saying. Paul says, I don't care if you were born in church, if you came out of your mother's womb, born on the church pew, your first words were the words of amazing grace. He says, I don't care if you grew up in church, Or some of you are here and you're still using, you're still dealing drugs, you're still sleeping with the person that you're dating, your words and your languages are still abusive. He says, I don't care if you grew up your whole life familiar with God or if you're here in this space hung over from last night, in the eyes of Jesus, we all stand on the same ground. Do you hear that? That in the kingdom of God, there is no spiritual caste system. That there's not the haves or the have-nots. That we were all have-nots. And that in Jesus, we're all haves. I wish I could get a church to be excited about something like that. I mean, how amazing is that? How amazing. Listen to this. He says they got the same offer. They needed the same help. They needed the same promises in Jesus. This message is acceptable and welcoming to everybody across the board. You realize that the gospel is accessible and is welcoming to everybody across the board. What an amazing statement. Verse seven, and this has become my life work, helping people understand and respond to this great message. It came as a sheer gift to me, says Paul, a real surprise God handled all the details, and when it came presenting the message to people who had no background in the ways of God, Paul says, I was the least qualified of all the available Christians, but God saw to it that I would be equipped, but you can be sure that it had nothing to do with my natural ability. So Paul says, everything you see in me is only a declaration of God's sufficiency. Verse 8, he says, so here I am preaching and writing about things that are way over my head, the inexhaustible riches and generosity of Jesus. And my task is to bring out into the open and to make plain what God, who created all of this in the first place, has been doing in secret and behind the scenes all along. He says, through followers of Jesus, just like yourself, Ethos Church, gathered in local churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and is being talked about even among the angels. All this is proceeding along the lines that God had planned out and then executed in Christ Jesus, his son. So when we trust in him, we are free to say whatever needs to be said. We're bold enough to go wherever we need to go. I love how Paul ends. So don't let my present troubles on your behalf get you down. Be proud. 
And there's this, this moment where this, this brother says, do you know how much the human soul is worth to God? He says, because I know. He says, there's this confrontation where I saw the realness and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. And that confrontation compelled me, propelled me into this life of compassion for those that still feel like outsiders. And he says, and the rest of my life is gonna be given as being spent to doing whatever it takes so outsiders know that they're insiders in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what would happen if our culture saw a church like this? Can you imagine what would, would happen if our culture saw a church that was not standing up for itself, fighting for itself, trying to defend itself against all of the cultural wars? But what if the culture saw a church that was dying to itself, laying itself down so that the people of the culture could just see how valuable they were to Jesus? So you think something amazing happens when men and women, just like you and I, Become confronted with the realness of God because when you are confronted with the realness of God, your value and your love for the depths of humanity immediately begins to follow suit. That it is fundamentally impossible to be close to God and to devalue human beings. <laughs> that it is impossible to be near to Jesus' heart and to not care about those who don't yet know him. And Paul says, this is what I'm giving my life for. And he says, so don't feel sorry for me that I've suffered for the sake of you, the outsider. He says, but now your turn is coming. And I think there's this moment where we as a church, we have to decide, okay, do we want to just study the stories of great men and women of faith? Or do we want our lives to become the lives that other generations will one day study? Do you want to gather and just keep studying somebody else's adventure or do you want by the grace of God to live a life that somebody else wants to study? Because there's this thing that happens when we are confronted with the realness of Jesus. Our lives are compelled towards compassion for the sake of those that don't yet know him. I mean, this is the thing that we're praying for and this is the tension in, in moments like this because I'm convinced that it's fundamentally impossible for me to go, okay, now here's three steps that you take so that you can see the realness of Jesus and care for your neighbors. Hey, here's two steps that you can do to, to love the person at work better this week. Because here's what I know, is if our motivation towards the lost, if our motivation is anything other than the unbelievable magnitude of Christ Jesus' love. If our motivation is anything else, it will either wound the people we're trying to serve or our energy for that very mission will run short. We'll run out of gas. But when you're confronted with the significance of what heaven says, about the worth of humanity. Man, your conversations with every barista, with every coworker, with every family member, with every friend, with every neighbor, everything begins to fundamentally change when we're confronted with the realness of Jesus. And Paul says, listen, here in Ephesians 3, is if you don't understand who Christ is, you'll never understand why I'd suffer for you. He says, but because I knew who Christ is, don't worry about my suffering because I want you to know him. If just one of you in this room 
would catch fire with the realness of Jesus, it would change our city. If all of us would catch fire with the realness of Jesus, we'd rewrite history. <laughs> and I go, that's what I'm praying for. So this morning, I don't, I don't want to end with like three points and, you know, here's how you, here's how you try to work it out. I want to give us the space to ask God to do what only God can do. And I'm convinced only Jesus himself can awaken us to his realness. And so if you're new to our church, you know, one of the things that we're passionate about is prayer. In fact, we spent the whole first part of this year just getting together every Sunday and just praying. And this morning, we're just gonna get together and we're just going to pray that the Spirit of God would literally awaken us right here and right now to the goodness of Jesus and to what that means for the people that we love the very most. And so here in just a moment, I'm gonna let you pray in groups together. If you're new here, I just wanna say this. If you, if you don't feel comfortable praying with somebody next to you, you don't have to. There's no spiritual peer pressure here. You can just tell them, hey, I, I wanna just spend some time reflecting on my own. I don't wanna share, and that is perfectly acceptable. But for those of you that are willing, I wanna invite you uh, right now to get in groups of two or three, and we're just gonna spend the next 10 minutes or so just praying that God would awaken our church's heart to the realness of Jesus and his love for the world around us. Because I believe when that awakening happens, no force on earth can stop us from sharing this unbelievable message that everybody's been included. So if you haven't done this yet, make sure, say hello to the person next to you. Make sure you know their name. We're gonna be praying together. So go ahead and say hello to somebody next to you right now. And then I wanna invite you to just spend the next 10 or 12 minutes just praying for a fresh awakening in our church. And then I'm gonna spend a few minutes praying over us at the end and we'll sing a song or two together to conclude our time. But let's, let's spend some time praying out loud right now as a church.
Father, I love you. Uh, Jesus, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. And I just thank you for just the way that you're at work in our church family. And uh, Father, I just ask that you would just awaken our hearts just to, to your realness. You know, Jesus, you tell us wherever there are two or three gathered in your name that you're among us all, also. And so, Lord, I know that we don't have to beg you to come be here with us. I just pray that you would open our eyes and awaken our hearts to your presence, Lord, like uh, being at a party where the honored guest comes in and, and is welcomed in. Lord, would you just help us to recognize your presence here among us this morning? Uh, Lord, would you awaken us to uh, how good you are and how merciful you are for my friends that have been followers of Jesus for a long time? And Lord, sometimes over the years, if we're not careful, we, we lose sight of just how desperately we needed your love and your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, I just pray that you would awaken us. For those that have not yet come to know you, Lord, would you just reveal yourself to them, Jesus? Would you help them to know how much you love them, how much you value uh, their lives and, uh, and who they are, God? And I just pray that you would show yourself to them. Lord, would you use our church as as a living testimony of just the value of humanity. Would you help us to be the first ones to declare how much the world is loved by God? And would you just use us, God, in that way? Would you awaken us to just how far it is that you were willing to come so that we can know you? And Lord, would you allow our lives to follow suit? Would you give us the courage and the boldness and the vision and the humility and the obedience and the faith and the love, Lord, to walk across our yards and meet our neighbors, to walk across the hall and meet our friends and sweet mates? Would you help us, Lord, to engage the people in our workspaces and in our neighborhoods and in our city? Lord, would you give us hearts for the broken, the down and out, the overlooked, the ones that seem as though they're far God, would you give us hearts for the cynics and the rebellious? Would you give us hearts for those that feel as though they're on the outside of the story? And Lord, just use our lives to bring them in. Lord, I pray that our lives would be worth uh, studying one day, that as we, as we walk in fellowship and faithfulness with you, that God would see it. Lord, use us this way in this city. Lord, don't just let us study the book of Ephesians. Help us to live it out. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen.